everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, how are you doing after a busy second week of Major League Soccer action? Busy week, and we lost an hour. I felt like this morning, you know when you wake up and you just feel like your eyes are still swollen shut? <laughs> I I felt like that. And also, um, I saw Bobby Boswell tweet about how, how yesterday he watched um, an ungodly amount of soccer. I kind of feel like that after the weekends, too, don't you? I can relate to that part. The daylight savings time I cannot relate to out here in Arizona. We don't move our oh, clocks. Yeah, you so don't have that at all. It's, like, it's, it's wonderful. Normal. Exactly, exactly. Things did not change. Major League Soccer did not change. We had another crazy week, week two of the season. If you listened to our episode last week, this week's episode is going to look fairly similar in terms of structure. We're going to go through and break down two games that Jordan and I thought were particularly interesting. We'll go pretty in-depth on those first two games. Then we're going to add a new segment in. Jordan, this was your idea. Why don't you go ahead and intro this new segment? Ooh, we're giving you our favorite MLS assist of the weekend and going along with the name of our show. We're really going to talk about that secondary assist. So who set up somebody to get the main assist on a goal? Um, I think this will be fun. It kind of gives us a little way to get into more games and to show one of the goals of the week. And we've got to stay on brand. You and I have always got to stay on brand. (laughs) On brand. Hashtag on brand. (laughs) Jordan was looking out for the show with that idea. So we'll go through the MLS assist segment, and then we're going to talk about two tactical tidbits, one from me and one from Jordan, to give some more teams some time, and we'll talk about tactics from a couple other games in that section. And then finally, we'll end with listener questions, just like we did last week. Jordan, are you ready to get started? Let's do it. All right. Our first game we're going to sink our teeth into is Atlanta United's 2-1 win over FC Cincinnati at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Jordan, we're going to start this out by just looking at each team's kind of overall formation and general approach. Why don't you go ahead and intro Cincinnati for us? All right. Cincinnati comes to Atlanta, one of the, I would say, the loudest place over the weekend to play. They Absolutely. had over 60,000 people. Um, and they set up in a, a 4-3-3. Madunian in that player who's really their their pivot in that. And then their target man, uh, Lacadia up top. And one of the things that I think we noticed right away is that that formation was going to flux a little bit, especially when they were playing defensively. So we'll, we'll get in a little bit more of that. But um, typical 4-3-3 trying to... Uh, get at this Atlanta side, which is always difficult when they're at home. And the big question for Atlanta United was, how are they going to replace Joseph Martinez? How is Frank DeBoer going to set this team up to play without their star striker? And they they didn't really change much of anything in this game, no. at least to my eye. I mean, it was Adam John in for Martinez, who was who was up in the stands watching this game. But John came in and played as that number nine. He had Pitti Martinez and Ezekiel Barco playing underneath him. And they Frank DeBoer stuck with that same three four two one shape. That's that's super free flowing. Once the ball gets forward into the final third, Pitti and Barco like to kind of move around. They'll be flowing all sorts of different places. But the setup was similar. They they. Tried Tried to build from the back, which which FC Cincinnati's defensive setup really allowed them to do. They build them, they built from the back. They even got out a little bit in transition, which is something we'll talk about on the first goal. But it was the same, by and large, the same Atlanta United. Would you agree with that, Jordan? I would agree with that, and I think that the when you look at their actual setup, it's never going to be the same Atlanta and United because of the work that Martinez did in that nine spot because he almost made it into this hybrid. Like, yes, he would play 
as a traditional nine, but he'd also be a false nine and, and get into the midfield and create there. So you're not going to get that with Adam John, right? Like he's going to be your prototypical like nine. I'm going to post up and, and try to play with my back to goal or try to get in the seams. And and John, just to add to that, he did drop into midfield a little bit in this game, but you could see the difference between him and Martinez because he's not a threat really to create. They just he, give him the ball. They give him the ball and then he tries to lay it off or move around. I mean, John is good with his feet. I've seen him play yeah. all of last season with Phoenix Rising, but he's not a threat to turn and then drive forward or really come in with a whole lot of creativity deeper in midfield. So against Cincinnati, it didn't matter as much just because this roster for FC Cincinnati and Johan Deme is still being developed. They're still learning how to play together. But in future games against maybe a little bit more dangerous, more cohesive opposition, I think then we're going to start to see Atlanta really miss Joseph Martinez. But in this game, at least to my eye, I didn't think they, they truly missed him up top quite as much. But let's go ahead and get into these these few goals. We're going to analyze the goals before we get into some of the more specific tactical details. Atlanta United's first goal came midway through the first half. FC Cincinnati lost the ball in the attack when Yuya Kubo and Locadia couldn't quite connect in the in the attacking half for FC Cincinnati. Brooks Lennon got on, jumped to the loose ball, and then dribbled forward, played the ball up the wing to Pitti Martinez on that right side, who got into a pocket of space behind Greg Garza. A really good recognition of space from Pitti Martinez on that wing. And then he went to work. Pitti Martinez dribbled into the box, like past Kendall Vlaston, like he's a, a traffic cone. That's what I have in my notes. He, he was so stiff. Pitti didn't give him a chance to play the ball. And then he played the ball into the box. Adam, John, and Barco were running in, and, and Pitti found Barco for a pretty aggressive finish, but right at the goal mouth. This, to me, was a reminder of just how lethal Atlanta United can still be in transition. They're they're brutal going forward. This is what we saw under Tata Martino. Frank DeBoer has gotten away from that a little bit. The players, I think, is still in their DNA to an extent. They love to get forward quickly. They love to sprint forward into the attacking half and let the creative players do their thing. And I think, ultimately, that's what we saw here from Pitti Martinez and Barco combining for this first goal. And I think that really is exactly what United Atlanta United wants to do, right? I loved the play by Lennon there because he he drove a little bit with the ball at his feet in order for the run of Pitti Martinez to open up and then the feint by Martinez in the box to put off Kendall Waston was was beautiful. The thing that was surprising a little bit to me was just the number advantage on the transition for FC Cincinnati. Uh, they had numbers back. They were they looked like they were in a good spot, and that's something that um, we'll get into a little bit more as we we talk. But uh, picture perfect transition goal there from Atlanta. It was, and and that numbers. FC Cincinnati having numbers back is a, is a similar theme for their second goal. Atlanta United's second goal early on in the second half. They're up 1-0. They have the ball. They're working it around in possession. FC Cincinnati are, were more than content to sit a little bit deeper and to allow Atlanta United's back three to control the tempo while FC Cincinnati tried to really compress that midfield space. They were trying to have as many numbers back to deal with Atlanta United's sort of box midfield. I mean, you look at Atlanta's structure and they have Eric Rometty and then Emerson Heinemann as that kind of double pivot. And then higher up the field, they have Barco and Pitti Martinez forming what is sort of a block sometimes, it's always morphing, it's always shifting, but Cincinnati were really focused on not allowing Atlanta to play through that central midfield space, and the way they tried to the way they tried to block off that space was using Locadia and then Alan Cruz as their kind of sort of 
semi front two, it was always shifting. The defensive shape was shifting, but they had those two players kind of step into the passing lanes in front of Remedi and Hindman so that Atlanta United's back three wouldn't be able to play through midfield. Theoretically, they were trying to force them wide and keep them out of that dangerous central midfield space. But on this goal, we kind of saw some of the difficulties with that. George Campbell was in for uh, Wyke at, as the right center back in Atlanta's back three who had gone out with an injury earlier in the match. And he was under no pressure. Cincinnati were just content to block off the passing lanes. They didn't want to step high up the field of pressure. So he had plenty of time to look forward, allow the attacking players to move around and find pockets of space. He played it up to Barco in midfield, who just moved, turned, started dribbling, eventually found Jake Mulraney and Pitti Martinez on the left side, got the ball back, and then found Emerson Hyman in the box, who who again scored to double Atlanta United's lead. So here I think we saw the limitations of Cincinnati's defensive structure, even though we could also see the kind of the intent of what they were trying to do. It still allowed a goal. It did allow a goal, and I think that what you just said there is important if you're FC Cincinnati fan because the intention and where how they were set up was not poor. I think that they did a really good job, especially from this uh, some adaptations from the first half to the second half. Going more um, defensively in the first half, they looked like they had gone into more of like a four five one and really uh, trying to block those central areas, and then it it turned more into a, a four four two defensive structure and trying to get a little bit more pressure on those center backs for Atlanta. But when Atlanta scored this goal, there were six players in the immediate area for FC Cincinnati. And I think that just speaks to the playmaking ability of Barco and Pitsy Martinez, because there were players that just were looking at them and Heinemann kind of snuck in into this, what turned out to be a pretty good size gap, especially when you're talking about uh, the defensive 18, where he could just uh, turn and somehow sneak that in the, the near post. It's a, it's a really nice goal by Heinemann in the end. And it is. I think this battle between Cincinnati's defensive structure and Atlanta's possession in that back three, I think that's something that a lot of teams around the league are going to look at this season. Because when you play Atlanta United, not only do you have to worry about the transition, like we talked about early, but their midfield four really is something that every team is so afraid of. Because, I mean, you, you stop the double pivot and then you have to deal with the, the two attacking midfielders. You stop the two attacking midfielders and Emerson Hyman gets on the ball and he dribbles right through you. It, it didn't end up working. I mean, it, it didn't get them the result that Johan Deme was looking for. But the idea here was really interesting from FC Cincinnati to try to block off those central lanes and force Atlanta's back three to be the distributors. It's unfortunate because when you have a guy like Fernando Meza, Miles Robinson will be coming back. He can dribble forward into midfield from that central center back spot. I mean, White and Campbell, like all these players can distribute as well. So it just it just shows how difficult it is to stop Atlanta United's possession structure. That's one thing certainly that I took from this game. And I think a lot of other Major League Soccer coaches around the league are going to be watching this film back to see what did Cincinnati do well can we apply that to our game and then like you were talking about Jordan can we do better when we do have those advantages in the box to take to take advantage of Atlanta United's lack of numbers if we've compressed that midfield so well Atlanta United is such a unique beast right and the way that they set up and the kind of what you were saying and their fluidity with those gosh front five players you can even throw Heinemann in there as well um that I think if you're a team you have to set up specifically for them but FC Cincinnati had a lot of good defensive moments that they're going to take out of this and bring into their next game so I I don't think they should be uh, too worried about the actual structure I think in the second half we saw a really good performance for FC Cincinnati because they looked a little less fearful 
Did you notice that? hundred percent. And I think some of that, you know, they down two zero at this point. They eventually realize that we have to step higher. We have to go forward a little bit more. And, and to me, that's where this, the, their only goal of this match came in. They grew into the game. They were a little bit more comfortable with the ball. Jordan, why don't you walk us through that goal for FC Cincinnati that got them back, at least in striking distance of the, of an actual result on the road? The goal came because they were a little bit more confident on the ball. And as they started to build up in possession, I think one of the things when you're playing this Atlanta squad is with a, a three back that really morphs into a five back right in in defense. So it's like a five two three defensively when you're watching Atlanta uh when a team has possession against them. So Cincinnati got a little bit of possession and then that pocket, those two pockets right on the outside of the two holding midfield players are really areas where they can start to exploit. And Kubo was starting to find that in the second half. And, and what happened there is he received a really nice ball squared up. Notice that the central defender wasn't going to come at him. And he scored, uh, quite honestly, a beautiful goal. It, it was knuckling, but it was all about how they were possession, possessing in the, that minute before to allow Kubo to get into that space and to draw Atlanta back a little bit into a more defensive structure. And that's that's such a great observation that the weakness in Atlanta United's defensive block because Pitti Martinez and Barco are those attacking minded players. They don't want to track back. I mean, they're willing to do so sometimes, but they don't love to, to get back and defend. Did you see sometimes too? Adam John was like even farther back defensively than those two. Yeah. I mean, he's willing to do the defensive work knowing yeah. that these South American stars that are here to attack, not to defend, Can aren't willing transition. to do as much. <laughs> exactly. And it's, yeah. it's a strength for them because it allows them to get forward into transition quickly. But it's also a weakness when you see guys like Kubo come into that pocket of space right on the outside of the double pivot and wrong foot Brad Guzan from outside the box. I mean, that's that is the biggest weakness in my mind in Atlanta United's defensive structure. And Cincinnati proved maybe a little too late in this match that they are able to take advantage of that. And that's that's one thing that I want to see from this team in the future. You bring in Harris Madunian in. You have Yuya Kubo. You have Locati, who's a, a good goal scorer, although he hasn't quite shown it. He scored in the first match against Red Bulls, but it was a, not the best goal in transition. But they have these quality attacking players. I want to see Demay get them, get the ball moving, get them working it around in possession. And we, we caught a glimpse of it at the end of this match, but it's not quite caught hold yet for Cincinnati. And I think it will because you could sense some frustration from Lacadia up front, um, especially in the first half. I think maybe it led to a little bit of the way that FC Cincinnati changed the way that they were playing because they just kept clearing the ball, clearing the ball, and he went to go chase it. And finally, I think um, after 25 minutes, he's just like letting the ball go and not even giving it any effort. And it's so frustrating as that lone uh, player in the as the outlet can he maybe work if, if that's how FC Cincinnati has to play for times of the game can he maybe work a little bit more to find where potentially and anticipate where that ball is going to come out but but if he can't uh, work and figure out a way to connect a little bit more because uh, he's a player that they need to get on the ball and I think um, th there are some good takeaways for FC Cincinnati I think for me to kind of close this one up. I just think they're there in both goals. They have to feel one encouraged that they have numbers back, especially in big transition moments in that first goal. But then sec on the second goal, they were in a good defensive structure. It's just the roles and responsibilities and a, a defender stepping up and saying like, I, I checked my shoulder. I know the guys behind me. I'm going to have to get back a little bit to Mark Heinemann or step forward to Mark Heinemann when he pops into that gap. Um, the numbers are there now 
there has to be a responsibility that is incorporated with that. Week two of the season, I'm sure we'll see a lot of improvement from FC Cincinnati, probably improvement from Atlanta United as well, which is probably pretty scary, even without Joseph Martinez for the rest of the Eastern Conference. Hey, this is producer Daryl cutting in with an ad read. What other podcast do you listen to where the producer does the ad reads? Today's MLS Assist is sponsored by the Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear. That's a suit or a tuxedo. The Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine. It was maybe even a worse fit than what Scalato was asking the LA Galaxy to do this past weekend. With the Black Tux, you can enjoy the easy online ordering process that brings a suit or tuxedo straight to you. You pick a style at theblacktux.com and you request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. So basically... They send the tux or the suit to you well in advance. And then if there's something wrong, you have time to change it. So you look right. You look right for your event. And if for some reason you're scared of the internet, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can go in person and find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. So whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. And if you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and then enjoy 10% off with code SOCCER. That's theblacktux.com, code SOCCER for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. That's enough from me. I'll send you back to Joe and Jordan. We'll go ahead and move to our second Eastern Conference game, a matchup between the New England Revolution and the Chicago Fire. Bruce Arena versus Chicago's new head coach, Rafael Vicky, a 1-1 draw at Gillette. Jordan, why don't you go ahead and walk us through the Chicago Fire's offensive and defensive setup for this match? When we looked at these games, I guess I didn't realize we did two Eastern Conference matchups. Yeah, that was totally unintentional. I had we we did not mean to do that. It just sort of happened that these were two of the most interesting games from the weekend, at least according to we, us. Yeah, we might have to go to West Coast next week. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happened. Um, going to Chicago, four three three setup for Rafael, Vicky, and really the playmakers Frankowski, Mihailovic, and Herbers, who I was really impressed with throughout the entirety of the match. I think he's going to be a really big time player for this Chicago Fire FC team. And they had a lot of possession. They did a good job of uh, setting the tone in a windy and cold and second week game in uh, Foxborough, which can be a difficult place to play just with all the elements there. Absolutely. They, they got to work the ball around on that turf. It's not an easy task. For the New England Revolution, they played similar to how they played against Montreal last week in that 2-1 loss to the Impact up in Canada. Bruce Arena set up this team in a 4-4-2. They had Gustavo Bo and then uh, Buxka up top working as that front two. Very dangerous combination throughout this match. And then they had those two blocks of four. They, for the most part, were content to let Chicago possess the ball. But they did start to sort of grow into the game midway through the first half. And, and that's where the first goal came around for the Revolution. The Fire, at this point, were all willing to let the Revolution possess a little bit, essentially daring the Revolution to break down that 4-1-4-1 shape that Rafael Vicky was defending in at the beginning of this game. And that's exactly what the Revolution did. In their possession shape, Gustavo Bo 
dropped from the top down sort of to the left half space a little bit deeper in the possession for New England. Then he played a long lofted ball out to the right wing to right back Brandon by Jordi Mihailovic, who was playing as sort of the left winger in Vicky's setup, couldn't close down by quickly enough to present to prevent a cross into the box. By by kind of played that mid height cross right to Buxka, who completely beat Calvo. He, Calvo just looked like kind of how I said Watson was a traffic cone in the last game. It was the same thing in this match. He he was not able. Calvo was not able to step to the ball quickly. It looked like his his feet were kind of frozen in cement in there just for a second, which allowed Buxka to cut in front of him, get the ball collected, and then finish with a strong left foot past past the goalkeeper. I mean, a defensive mistake absolutely from the fire, and I think that's something that they're going to want to address going forward. It was that actually like Calvo didn't even know that Buska was coming on his shoulder, which if you're at the top of the box and you're a central defender, you have to expect that there's always someone around you trying to hunt the ball. It, was, it ends up being a really nice finish, but the, the ball in by by was it was excellent. The Early ball, cross. The ball in was nice, and it's this is kind of a confusing juxtaposition because it's so clearly Calvo's defensive mistake that allows you know Buxa to get that goal. But the possession buildup was nice from the Revolution. I mean, Bow dropping deep was great. The the ball over to Bai was nice, and the cross, like you mentioned, Jordan, those were all clean movements. What I thought was interesting is it all came off of a possession from the Chicago Fire when they had the ball on the opposite side of the field, so they were on their left hand side if you're the Chicago Fire and the ball um, got dropped back to Jordi Mihailovic in this in the left channel and what he did was one of the things that I think really works in a 4-3-3 setup is if you're a winger and you drive centrally with the ball in the middle third of the field so as he drives centrally the outside back for New England has to chase him a little bit and he chases him inside. And what happens is there's two front runners for the fire, pushing the the center backs back and trying to soften the back line. So you have counter movements there to kind of create a little gap and the center forward for Chicago in Barrett just slides towards that space where Mihailovic left. And if Mihailovic can connect that ball back, it's just a little drop pass. And the ball can then go back to the left side where Mihailovic um, left. It would have been a really beautiful buildup from Chicago. And the movements were all there to make that kind of uh, tactic work as they tried to squeeze the New England revolution, revolution to the other side of the field. But when that ball back didn't connect for Chicago, then New England was off. And that's the possession that they started there that you had just spoken of. And they went to the opposite side of the field. Then New England went to their left side. And it was really Gustavo Bo, right? And something that you talked about, how you think that Gustavo Bo is going to be one of the, the biggest playmakers in the in the Eastern Conference and his ability to sit in those half spaces. And he really just pulled the strings on that one. And that was actually Carlos Hill that I was talking about who was injured in this match for the Revolution. Oh, it was. But You're Bo, right. But Bo is Bo another guy. <laughs> we clearly saw it. That's one well, thing. There we go. That's one thing I wanted to talk about anyway was when this Revolution team gets Carlos Hill back onto the field when he's healthy, the front three, I mean, I don't think they're going to play a front three, but those three primary attacking guys in, in Buxka, in Bo, in Hill, like those guys are going to be absolutely lethal to deal with both in transition with Bo's pace and then the, the hold up play as well from the number nine and then Hill's playmaking ability, but also in possession. You clearly have Bo who can drop into a half space, play balls with his right foot over to the opposite wing or Hill who can drop into the other half space, play balls in with his, with his left foot from the right side. It's going to be an absolutely lethal combination for the revolution this year. 
And that goal in particular, I think, shows you those two things is New England tried to go in transition and try to get after the fire right away. But then Bo recognized it wasn't on. He brought it back and then he connected a few times to then switch the point of attack and be a little bit more possession oriented. And he really was the pace, right? The heartbeat of that play. And that's what you want from that type of player. And I don't think Bruce Arena is really the kind of coach. I could be wrong on this. I don't think he's the kind of coach who's going through and doing detailed possession movements in practice or any of those things. Like, I don't picture him having the, the field divided up into all these different zones with a bunch of mannequins like we've seen kind of from Greg Berhalter's training sessions with the U.S. national team. But, I mean, if the Revolution can pull out possession sequences like this often enough to sort of counteract their transition ability as well to keep them from being one-dimensional, that's going to be huge for them this season. Yes, this goal that we're talking about did come from a huge defensive mistake but, I mean, a lot of attacking is capitalizing on defensive mistakes. You can break any goal down into, well, this defender should have been positioned here or he should have made a play on the ball there. Ultimately, the Revs just have to keep taking advantage of when those situations, when those mistakes are presented to them. And they totally did that on this goal. Uh, absolutely. And I think the next point and the re- real big moment, because this game went a little bit... Um, into a lull, right? There was back and forth, but it wasn't really until uh, the Chicago Fire brought their new DP in that we saw a little bit more of a switch of formation there in the 60th minute, 64th minute. Yeah, it was it was that formational shift that kind of led to the Chicago Fire's goal. Right, we saw Rafael Vicky bring on designated player, essential midfielder Gaston Jimenez on for the right back in this match, which sort of changed at least for a while. It changed the Fire's shape from that four three three to to more of a lopsided three at the back shape. Jordan, you and I texted about this during the game. We were trying to figure it out. What did we sort of decide as to what the Fire were actually doing in the second half? Okay, first off, I will, I have to shout out Tyler Terrans, uh, his first call as the new play-by-play for. Way to go, Tyler! Yeah, for the Chicago Fire, he did a great job. Um, but I was listening to him and Tony Miola speak. And of course, we're sitting and we're watching the game that you guys are seeing right there at the stadium. They can see a wide picture. They can see every single detail that's happening on the field where we only get whatever camera the producer and director decide to go with. So, um, they kept speaking that it was a, a, a three, five, two, and it was a three, five, two. And I, every time I looked up, I felt like Chicago was defending with four players and it wasn't a five back. It wasn't a three back. It was four players defensively. So my, my thought when I watched the game and I actually went back and watched a, a big chunk of the second half again, to see what was really happening. It looked like it was kind of a hybrid, like they were still defending with a four back, but then as soon as they won the ball, Bornstein would get high and wide. Mihailovic would tuck in centrally to kind of occupy like an attacking midfield spot on the left side. And they would shift into a three back, uh, keeping Kapelhoff back. Is that what you saw? Yeah, it was. It really was confusing to try to figure out. And it's hard without knowing exactly what Vicky told his guys. But we saw when that right back came out, when Bronico came out for the Chicago Fire, Kapelhoff kind of moved over as a hybrid between a right center back and a back three and a straight up right back. Sometimes it was Frankowski on that right wing. Sometimes it was Herbers. And then it was it was just constantly fluid. Mihailovic really wasn't playing as a straight up central midfielder, kind of like you got at. He was a little higher, even interchanging wide like he actually did in the build up to the goal sequence. It was a lot of fluid a lot of it made it difficult for us to do our jobs Jordan to figure out exactly what was going on but it it also made it challenging for the revolution's defense to figure out exactly how to defend this group because almost 
not almost immediately, but just a handful of minutes after Vicky brought on Jimenez for Bronico, we saw the goal sequence. We saw the Chicago Fire in that sort of lopsided hybrid 3-5-2-3-4-3-4-3-3. It's a lot of numbers. In that lopsided possession shape, we saw them break the New England Revolution's defensive block down. Herbers had the ball wide as that temporary right wing back. Is he a central midfielder? We don't even know. He found guests on Jimenez who combined a little bit with Madron in the central space between the Revs' front two and their midfield four. In that midfield space, Jimenez got the ball in space between the lines, turned and played a long diagonal ball out to Jordi Mihailovic, who had interchanged a little bit, Jordan, with Bornstein. Bornstein, the left wing back or the left back, however you want to call it, he and Mihailovic had switched a little bit. So then you have your playmaker out wide a little bit. Bornstein started to tuck inside and move into the box. Mihailovic with the ball out from Jimenez has time. Pania's not really eager to close him down out on the wing. So Jordi looks up and he plays a right foot across into the box that finds the left wing back, Bornstein, who's now in, in, in the middle of the field. Bornstein beats Andrew Farrell for a header that levels the game at 1-1. Just a really nice possession movement sequence. Not similar to the Revolution, but both of these goals did come from a nice offensive movement in in the attacking half. And if my memory serves me correct, the initial start of that whole possession started on the left side for the fire. And it was actually um, the ball went wide to Mihailovic and it was right then when then uh, Bornstein came inside. So they tried to play off each other. It didn't work and the ball got switched to the right side. And then as it was on the right side and it went into Jimenez, that's when the goal that you were just talking, that sequence kind of started. So those two in Mihailovic and Bornstein had already switched at the beginning of that possession. And then they just continued. They they were fine occupying those spaces. And I think that ability to have the uh, interchangeability going forward is something that we see with some of the top teams in MLS right now. Oh, it's so huge. Like, I mean, when Vicky came out with Mihailovic as a left winger, and that's something he did against Seattle as well last week. Georgie's not a, he's not a winger. He's a central midfielder. He's an attacking midfielder. So all along, that was to allow Bornstein to go high up the side from the start of the game in that 4-3-3 and have Georgie tuck inside. So then we saw Jimenez come on, another central midfielder. Just the, the sheer number of players that they have who can play different roles. Pineda started as a defensive midfielder. Really impressed with his performance overall. Not flawless. Covered a lot of ground. But then he dropped back as that central center back in their in their hybrid three back. Maybe he was playing as part of a center back pairing. He, he was everywhere in that defensive line. They have so many guys who are flexible. Frankowski, I talked about in the Eastern Conference preview that, that you and I did. He can play right back. He can play right wing back. He can play right wing. He even tucked inside in this match. So many of their attacking players and their midfield players can rotate into different spaces. And I think that's going to get Vicky eventually the shape that he wants once he has a few more games with this team. One of the things that I think was important to Chicago Fire is when they went to that 3-5-2 or when they changed to a three-back and Jimenez was in there, right away you could see how it could initiate a higher press for them because they needed a goal, right? So they had to press higher on the field. And this play that I'm talking in particular was right after they switched. So uh, 60th minute, 64th Roughly. minute, I sure. believe. Yeah, it's right in there. But um, Calvo has the ball and he plays a really nice like 40 yard ball, cutting the seams, not only horizontally, but vertically on the field to to Mihailovic, who's in this little pocket of space, tries to connect down the left side, but it doesn't work. So Chicago turns the ball over um, with that pass from Calvo on his 18 nearly and within 15 seconds they're already on the other side on their 18 so they have New England turn to face their own goal defending um, 
as the ball had transitioned over. But what happened quickly right there is they could go and press, right? So with more numbers forward, it was uh, Farrell getting pressed by Mihailovic, who was then higher on the field, could get pressure to the ball. And it just forced Farrell to play a long ball, which then Bornstein in that wing back area excuse me, it was Calvo who then had pushed up as that third center back to win the ball in the outside channel. And it was a really good initial press from Chicago. They won the ball back. The, the didn't result to anything on the field, but Chicago did a good job. Okay, we're switching. We have to score a goal. We initiated a press. We won the ball back high in the field and we got to goal. I think for them, that was a real... Um, probably a positive moment and something that they could as a team build off of saying, okay, this is going to work. We're going to score a goal. And they have the players to press for Rafael Vicky. Mihailovic is, is good at stepping high up the field. He's an energetic guy. Pineda, I talked about a little bit, covers tons of ground, really enjoyed watching his performance in this match. The, I mean, Calvo and Kapelhoff both had a, a big defensive mistake in this match. Calvo's led to the goal. Kapelhoff almost completely missed picking up Renex at the end of this match that would have let the revolution, you know, come away with three points in this home game for them. But they have mobile center backs for the most part. They have fullbacks. Well, not, not maybe not as much as the fullbacks, but they have wide players as well with Frankowski, especially who can step up, move up and down the line, pressure, drop back if that press is broken. Vicky has so many options to work with that. I mean, we're going to see them oscillate from we're sitting deeper, depending on the opponent. We're going to sit deep or we're going to step high. They have so many different options, both with and without the ball. That's going to make the Chicago fire really, really fun to watch this season. And they were in this game. I really enjoyed watching this match. Yeah, it was fun. I think that's a good wrap-up of those two games. What do you feel like? Absolutely. I think it's time for us to move on to the debut of the MLS Assist of the Week. Jordan, take it away. All right, I'm going to go to a game that when I saw the scoreline, I was like, okay, Sporting Kansas City, (laughs) four goals against Houston. Um, So my MLS Assist of the Week is the the best secondary assist of the weekend. And there's actually a couple that I could have chosen from. I like Brooks Lennon's in Atlanta's first goal as he just played in Pitsy Martinez. But I'm going to go with Johnny Russell. He's getting the first nod. So for the third goal of Sporting Kansas City, they build up through the right side and Johnny Russell gets on the ball. And what do you know about when Johnny Russell's on the ball? The defenders are going to come a flock. Oh, they're right? going to they're going to come over and and they're going to be scared. At least I would be. <laughs> so Johnny Russell commits. I would be scared too. <laughs> two two defenders and his ability on the ball. He just holds it up to the perfect timing to allow Polito to find the seam in between the two defenders. So he splits the two defenders with a ball into Polito, who then beats his defender and sacrifices his body to slide and get the ball across for uh, a kinda goal. And I just loved that. I loved the wherewithal of Johnny Russell to know, okay, I have to hold this up a little bit, let the play develop, not only the first run by Polito, but then the eventual goal score in the box to let those two run a little bit, get caught up with the play. It was a beautiful goal. It was. It was a great match for Sporting Kansas City as well. They they showed truly that there's value in having a tactical identity that you keep from year to year. The Houston Dynamo under Tab Ramos just changing things up this season, trying to make them into a more of a structured possession team that high presses as well. That's, that's what Ramos is trying to do in Houston. Peter Vermees has been doing that for years. I mean, he's been doing that since, well, I don't know. He's 
he's he's not that old, but he's been doing it for a long time in <laughs> Kansas City. And we saw the benefits of that, right? We saw how their four three three can break through pressure, how they can also step high off the field to press and just make life absolutely miserable for the opponents. They scored four goals in this match, kept a clean sheet. Johnny Russell with the secondary assist was a huge part of that. He's going to continue to be a real impact player for SKC this season. I told you they're going to give up way less goals. That was one of my predictions. And they're starting off on a good foot in this game. And I don't want to expose myself here. I said Houston Dynamo were going to create a lot of offensive chances. They haven't done that so far this season, but you and I did add at the end of that prediction in our Western Conference very specific prediction preview that they'd also give up a lot of goals too and a lot of chances. And so, hey, maybe half right? I don't know. It's a long season ahead of us. (laughs) We'll give you half a point. I'm going to take that with with glee and move on. Um, Jordan, let's go ahead and transition to tactical tidbits. Uh, you you commentated the Columbus Crews 1-1 draw with the Seattle Sounders. What was your takeaway from this game? What is your tactical tidbit for this week's show? So my tactical tidbit between the Sounders and the crew is actually going to stay on the crew side and how they got after Seattle. So in the first half, Seattle really aware of the ability that the crew have in attack, especially in transition with the speed of Zardes and the speed of Diaz to try to get in behind. They weren't giving the crew any kind of space in behind. They were dropping their line quickly in transition and making uh, the crew play in front of them. So in the second half, my my specific thing that I really, really liked is in a transitional moment, Artur won the ball back in midfield and he played the ball out to Awful on the right side who was in this, this bit of space. So since he had space and no pressure on the ball, Awful picked his head up and started dribbling. And as a defender, your cue there, no pressure on the ball is you're going to drop, right? You have to drop your back line, especially if you have Jossie Zardes, um, who is trying to get off of your shoulder, cut in front of you and in between those two center back, um, in between the seam between the center backs there. So as they start to drop, Awful recognizes there that there's this huge space in, be- in front of the back line. And he plays in a driven ball to Jassy's artist's right foot, which is his front foot, not his back foot, which would have led him in behind. Because he played the ball to Zardes's right foot, he was able to stop on a dime, hold the ball up, and then connect back to the attacking midfielder and Celerion. And then the crew were out the other side. It was a really beautiful um, nuance to uh, way to break down a team who is dropping their line back so far. I thought that was really special in the way that the crew played. And even though it didn't lead to an actual really good opportunity, it put Pedro Santos on the left side in a space where he he can get that on goal, right? He has the ability in a 1v1 battle to take that player on um, probably seven times out of 10 is going to at least get a shot towards the frame. And that's the crew's offensive ability and ability to exploit situations like the one you just described. Caleb Porter's roster is uniquely constructed to do that. Harrison Offal is back. He's healthy playmaking on that right side. You know, Lucas Zellerayon in between the lines. You you talked about him last week in a listener question. Just clearly the guy who's he's worth the money. He's coming in and being a real difference maker for this team. Pedro Santos, a creative guy. Luis Diaz has that speed. Nagby, Artur in the midfield. Milton Valenzuela at left back. This is a really excellent roster. And seeing how they continue to break down teams 
teams and how they use the ball to create goal scoring opportunities, not only in this game against Seattle in this draw, but also in the future, how they go through and continue to pose threats to the opposing defense. That's going to be fascinating to watch for me. I still have yet to watch a full Columbus crew game this season, but in this match, because they didn't have to deal with an early red card like they did against NYCFC last week, we have our first real data point on the Columbus crew and only building off of that. It's going to be exciting to watch this team um, next week and the week after as well. Absolutely. And you mentioned NYCFC and actually we're going to transition straight into your tactical tidbit because it is about the Pigeons. It is about City. What do you have for us? Yeah, so I was watching this game Toronto FC's 1-0 win over NYCFC. This game was in Toronto. NYCFC didn't do a whole lot very well in this game. They were fine. They looked like, you can see the building blocks. I'll say that. You can see how good this team can be at times. They've shown it as well a little bit in CONCACAF Champions League. I mean, they, they had a tough game against the crew last week in Major League Soccer, but NYCFC didn't have a whole lot going for them in this game. Toronto were, were a little bit better on the ball. They moved the ball forward a little bit. And most importantly, Toronto got the final goal. But one thing that did stand out to me tactically that I thought was especially interesting in this game is how NYCFC's left side used throw-ins to create offensive opportunities. Ooh, throw-ins. It's, it's throw-ins. I wrote about throw-ins in a little little piece I did for The Athletic at the New They're Year. They're important. They are important. They're so important, yeah. They're undervalued by so many teams in this league. And I don't know if this was a structured tactic for Mani Dyla or if it was just something that the players recognized in the moment. I'm guessing it's the latter, but throw-ins are a truly underutilized form of attack, and and we saw NYCFC take advantage of those opportunities in this match. Left-back Ronald Matarita had some really solid throw-ins that reminded me just how useful restarts can be, moving the ball in from the sidelines back into the run of play. So there were two specific moments in the second half of this match that I think are really worth pointing out, and I'll, I'll post clips of these on Twitter as well after the show drops so that we have some visuals to go with this, because I think it's going to be something to watch for NYCFC fans and and, and for fans of whichever Major League Soccer team to see if your team is able to copy something similar to this. The first example is in the 59th minute. Toronto FC were in sort of a 4-4-2 defensive block for, for most of this game. So with the ball being thrown in from the sideline, three of the four players in Toronto's midfield line shifted over to that side towards the ball, towards Matarita, Toronto's right side, NYCFC's left side. So Toronto has a concentration of players over close to the sideline. Matarita notices this, and so does Keaton Parks, who's the weak-sided central midfielder. So he's on the, the underloaded side for Toronto. Matarita and Parks sort of have this unspoken unspoken little little meeting of the minds here, and Parks <laughs> steps out of midfield. Matarita throws in the ball in that gap between the, the far defender for Toronto's midfield line, that opposite wide midfielder, and then the high concentration of players. So Parks sprints up the middle of the field. Matarita throws in the ball. He's in space between those those players in Toronto's midfield line. Parks picks up the ball. He runs into the gap, and he just starts a transition attack from nothing. It was a nothing moment that led to something for NYCFC. A few minutes later, they did the same thing. This time, the ball's a little bit higher up the field, more in the, in the middle section of Toronto's half. The same thing. Three of Toronto's midfield line is over towards the sideline. Matarita sees the space. So does Alexander Ring. He runs forward out of midfield. They combine. Matarita tosses him the ball. Ring steps forward into that gap and takes a one or two touches and then hits a shot off from well outside the box. The shot is way wide. But the idea here is NYCFC creating something, a chance, something, some transition attack out of nothing. And I think that's that's fascinating in this match. Is, are these long throws? Like, what's the span of the throw-in that... It's. I mean, it's not especially long. It's probably not even, like... 
maybe two-thirds of the way to the midfield line from the sideline. So it's it's a doable throw. It's a standard situation. It's just instead of throwing the ball into the scrum right around the sideline and trying to combine their way out of it, NYCFC took advantage of the huge gap in midfield and actually had some creative moments from throw-ins instead of just trying to take their chances with with the ball in maybe an equal numerical situation or even a slight numerical disadvantage on that sideline. They decided to play the ball into midfield and take advantage of space in a less occupied area. I like that. That's interesting. But I'm looking at your notes, so I'm cheating. But it might have been ironic, right? It, it didn't matter. Ultimately, these thrones, they were fun to watch, and I enjoyed them as someone who has no stake in NYCFC. But it didn't pay off. I mean, they, they were not able to score from these throw-ins. And in fact, it was Toronto who eventually took advantage of NYCFC's throw-in. A little bit of a different situation, but it led to their their one goal. Matarita threw the ball in instead of into a more central space. He threw the ball into the scrum, got it right back, tried to switch the field, tried to do what he couldn't do on the throw-in. He tried to switch it over to Tinnerholm. It was intercepted by Achara. Eventually, through some interplay between Pozuelo and Altador and Larea, the ball got back to Achara at the back post who headed it in for the goal. So despite the fact that I thought these throw-ins fascinating. They didn't pay off for NYCFC. Ronnie Dyla is still yet, he's still winless in Major League Soccer play. It kind of bit him in the butt at the end of the day, but I mean, it's something to watch for, at least as an NYCFC supporter or someone who's interested in the minutia of throw-ins. That's probably a small population of the people listening to this show. But hey, if you're interested in throw-in tactics, you like Liverpool, you might like watching NYCFC's left side this season. All I can think of is, isn't it ironic? <laughs> well, don't you think? I think we'll just play and the song. Yeah, I think we should just lead into the next segment. I was going to try to sing and use Matarita in a throw-in and try to change up the lyrics to that Alanis Morissette song, but it's probably better if we just use the song. Oh, man, no. Actually, we're not going to use the song. You're going to sing. You wanted to do that? Um, I know I regret speaking at all in the first place. I should have just let you keep going. You... uh, your interruption really gave the viewers something that they would have been talking about. Oh man, I'm kicking myself Listeners, right now. Listeners, not viewers. Ah, oh, that's tough. Well, well, maybe maybe we'll get Jordan to sing on the next week's show. Maybe not. Maybe we'll find out next week. Um, uh, yeah. Moving into well, our that's last. That's gonna be a listener's question, Jordan. Please sing the Atlantis Morissette song so we can hear about Matarita's throw-ins. Yeah, someone please send that in. Please do. Um, our last segment of the show, listener questions. We've got a few to talk about here. Jordan, why don't you go ahead and hit us with the first one? All right. First question, Rodrigo Carvalho. I know it's early in the season, but those three signings from Sporting Kansas City seem to be a clear upgrade to the team and take them to another level. What are your thoughts on Polito, Kinda, and... Puncic. Puncic. Yeah, so I've... That's me having watched Sporting Kansas City yet. Puncic. I got to learn that one. Puncic. And and so I've watched quite a bit of Sporting Kansas City in preseason and then in the early part of the season. These three players have been true impact performers, exactly like Rodrigo was hinting, hinting at in his question. So just briefly touching on all three of these, Alan Polito, the big the big signing in the summer. Daryl and I talked about him you know, in the preseason. Polito is is such a versatile forward. He, he played as a second forward, sometimes in Mexico. He has the ability to play in a number of different spots playing as the number nine in Peter Vermees 4-3-3. He's, he's got two goals in his first two games for SKC, so he's, he's already and scoring. And, and that assist. That's exactly right. So he's putting up the numbers already. He scored with his head. He scored with his, his right foot. That's what he did in this match against Houston. SKC's 4-0 win. Pulido's mobile. He defends. He likes to combine. Those are all things that Peter Vermees loves to see from a number nine. And Pulido's doing all of those. He can, he can combine in and around the box. He can feed his teammates. He can track back. He's an active participant in the press. So far, he's been a perfect number nine for SKC. Moving back into midfield, 
This is the guy that I'm actually most excited about so far this year. There's been quite a bit of buzz around him already from a number of different people on Twitter. Gadi Kinda, central midfielder. He's sliding into a competitive central midfield battle for Peter Vermees' team. I love him. He's he's a huge contributor in the press. He steps forward kind of in that seek and destroy mode. Vermees almost just lets him go within a structure, obviously, but he, he loves to step high. It's not the wingers as much who do the pressing for SKC. It's the central midfielders and Pulido. So Kinda and Espinosa really lead that press. He loves to step high and, and pressure the opponent center backs or, or just hamper the ball and really harass the ball handler. So Kinda, he's also good on the ball as well. He's able to charge forward into space. He's good with his right foot. He can combine. He can turn with pressure. He recognizes space really well. He did that in the build-up to one of Sporting Kansas City's goals. He's just a super well-rounded player. I saw my editor Alexander Abnos of The Athletic tweet um, that he's kind of like a more polished Latif Blessing for LAFC. And Ooh, I think it's a, it's a perfect comparison and Alex, I'm so jealous that I didn't think of that first because then I could have put in an article and you would have been impressed with me. But the idea is is so spot on. So if you're trying to picture Akinda in your mind, Latif Blessing is definitely a guy to, to compare him to. He has positional versatility, just a really well-rounded player who brings a lot of energy to SKC's midfield. One final guy here, Puncic. He's not the fastest center back partner for Matt Beasler, who's also not the fastest. So that could be something to keep an eye on as SKC should deal with some more challenging opponents as the season progresses. But he's solid on the ball. He can break lines with his right foot. He and Beasler are a really solid passing center back duo. He can also step forward into midfield to break that first line of pressure. I mean, he's exactly the kind of guy that Peter Vermees wants in midfield. And if Kinda, if Espinosa, if Busio can cover a little bit for the defensive weaknesses that Puncic and Beasler will likely have at times this year, he's going to be a perfect addition to the back line. So, yeah, Rodrigo, I'd say your, your question and your premise are spot on. It does seem like SKC have been elevated already in the earlier parts of the season with these three new signings. So, I'm a big fan of all of them. I think if you haven't gotten a chance as a listener to watch Kinda especially, try to tune in. Maybe even just watch the highlights from this past weekend's game. He's in it. He'll be in the highlights consistently throughout the rest of 2020. Or if you're Jordan and you haven't watched SKC yet, uh, go ahead and watch a game, right? Yeah, I mean, that works too. You know, just... just I'll get there, guys. I'll get there. It's we're a working lot on of games. It. We're but two people it's, and there are a lot of games. I've been thinking, Jordan, especially as MLS continues to expand, like gonna we're going to need so a, hard. We're gonna need a small army. We're going to need like at least double the manpower we have now. Yeah, um, absolutely. But we do the best we can. We're going to continue working around the league. Our next question yeah. from Kevin Minkus. Jordan, I'm going to pose this to you. Okay. Which result from the first two weeks will be the most surprising when we look back at the end of the season. I have some thoughts on this. I'm curious to hear yours as well. I think we have the same game because Miami's loss to DC to me really stands out because of how in control of the game Miami was until the red card to Roman Torres and really to see the script flipped so quickly and DC to come back. Um, I felt like that really set up for Miami's first victory and it felt like they uh, had, had the win. And even though Diego Alonso said it's going to take him like six games, I think he said yeah. to mm-hmm. see what his team is really made of. I think you saw what they can do, not only structured defensively, uh, they looked a lot more sound than they did in the first week against LAFC. But again, that's a different front uh, three, four, <laughs> five than, than DC's front players. But um I don't know. I was just shocked because it really, Roman Torres, it was a silly, silly, silly red card. And into Miami, 
is this is my choice as well, just to back up what Jordan was saying. Inter Miami's two and lost to DC United. This is my choice for two reasons. One, I think Miami is actually playing fairly well with the roster that they have. I've been really impressed with Alonzo's high pressure. You and I went into detail about that last week's show. I also read a piece about it. It's been really disciplined, really aggressive. It looks like you're watching a Liga Emeki's game when you watch Inter Miami press up the field just with the intensity that they have. So that's that's one thing. I think that's a hugely positive building block for Diego Alonso to to continue building on as the season progresses. The other thing is, I think Inter Miami's roster is going to vastly change over yeah. the, over the next couple of months. Taylor Twelman keeps teasing it. He says they're going <laughs> to have a couple of signings coming in sooner rather than later. It's a couple of big Major League Soccer signings. It's going to vastly improve this squad. So between those two factors for Miami, as the roster shifts, as the high press continues to get ingrained in these players, that's half of it. DC United, I'm not convinced by their play necessarily so far this season. We'll dig into them at some point in a future show and see kind of what they're doing well or maybe what they're not doing so well. But I think Miami is going to skyrocket over over the next couple of months as the season continues and, and as they get some new players in. Absolutely. I agree with you. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about Alonzo talking about the work of trap and um, how impressed he is about his with his ability, not only uh, defensively, but what he can do on the ball. And that's one thing I think um, when you just overall, like overarching ideas of like what American players are. And when you have this foreign coach come in who is such a big name and he speaks so highly of a, a big time American player or one that, you know, has made his name. I think that is really good if you're just talking American soccer in general. So I don't know. That's just a small point that I think of. And um wanted to add in for Miami. No, 100%. And Trap is kind of the center of their their offensive versatility. Whether they press, whether they use that as their primary method of chance creation, or whether once they get those new signings and maybe they sit a little bit deeper, they allow Trap to distribute a little bit more. We'll, we'll continue monitoring that situation throughout the season, and we'll, we'll certainly talk more about it on the show you know, later on as, as we see more of Inter-Miami play under Diego Alonso. Should we do one more? One let's, more listener question? Let's do one more. We'll sneak one okay. more in. Uh, oh, Jordan, I'm going to pose this one to you as well. We have Thomas back after a question from last week. He says, follow up from last week. Still looking for positives regarding Guillermo Barroso's tactics. Where is Jordan's galaxy hope meter at this week? <laughs> Jordan, where is the hope meter at this week? Thomas, you're calling me out. Um, eek. I think that's the first first word that comes to mind. Um, If I had an actual hopometer that fluctuated like one of those icons, it would definitely definitely be more towards the central than like um, um, higher. But I'm still I am still in the area of like, you have to keep the faith, right? Because I look at this galaxy roster and and maybe this is one thing that the galaxy have over the last, um, several, several years with the big, big names that they brought in, they've struggled to find a cohesion. And I think that when you look at the roster, man, it's all there, right? It's how do you, how do you bring all those attacking minded players and the skill sets that they have in order to be the most productive? But um, yeah, Eek is my first word. I know you tweeted about this, Joe. Yeah, I tweeted. So the Galaxy, just to provide a little bit of context, they they drew with Houston in week one, one to one, and then they they fell to the Vancouver Whitecaps one nil in this week two matchup. So at home. 
At home, at home. That's exactly right. It was not a good performance from the Galaxy. I'll have more detailed analysis out um, later this week on the Galaxy. But previewing. Yeah, previewing. previewing. This is Joe a little sneak peek. Larry's piece <laughs> coming out on The Athletic. Coming up this week. No more plugs, I promise. I'm done with plugs. But <laughs> no, it's good. I'll, have, I'll have some more detailed analysis out for you, Thomas, later this week. It's too many crosses from Guillermo Barcelota. I mean, Matt Doyle and the Extra Time crew have talked about this extensively over the first couple of weeks. They're... Chicharito's not Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He's not this number nine who's going to go up and win the ball. He's not a particularly tall guy. He wants to be able to move around in the box and and build up through possession. That's ideally what he wants to do. And Barcelota's just not about that. He's not willing so far to change up his preferred style of going quickly in transition and booting the ball into the box. That's That seems to be Barcelota's preferred method. And so far, we haven't seen any real willingness to change. It's been 27 crosses in week one, 27 crosses in week two. If they continue to play with the same style, I think Jordan's hopometer is going to drop. It's going to dip a little bit. And, and we're going to see the Galaxy really struggle at the early stages of this season. It's still early. Jordan, I think this was your main point from last week. It's still it's way too still early, early in the season. It's, it's okay to have some struggles at the beginning of the year, but that doesn't mean that it's also not okay to be a little concerned. And I think where Thomas is at is totally fair. I don't know how you feel, Joe, but just in the span of like world soccer, this has to be top three signings in MLS ever. So the awareness around Chicharito and like how we feel like he should perform is super, super high. Right. So I think that is going to fluctuate your hope meter a little bit more because if he's not producing right away, you're going to feel like it's a bad signing or um, that the team isn't doing everything it can. I think that they'll adapt. I really do. I think they'll adapt. And, and time will tell, honestly. We'll keep monitoring the situation. We'll, we'll look in on their tactics in a future episode. Jordan, I think we've covered about as much as we possibly can this week. We, we've been through a bunch of games. We've talked tactics. We've talked tactical tidbits, MLS Assist of the Week, listener questions. I think we've run the gambit. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me this week. Your insight is always appreciated, and I always look forward to chatting with you. It's so fun to chat with you, Joe. And you guys, you listeners, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for asking your questions. Oh, yeah. Thank you, guys. Trying to get to as many as we can. And uh, we appreciate you guys uh, following along as we chat, but also joining in. That's that's a pretty cool thing about it. 100%. So, yeah, thank you to our listeners. Thank you, Jordan. And we'll be back again next week. 